Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. All right, all right. Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. How's everyone doing? Uh, my name's Matt Kressel, and we are... I'm the co-host of Fantastic Fiction of KGB here with Ellen Datlow. Uh, the series is hosted on the third Wednesday of every month. It's always free. All we ask is that you buy a drink, hard or soft, and tip your bartenders who are working hard to keep you hydrated. Um, so we have uh, two fabulous readers tonight, Gregory Frost and Rajan Khanna, who are going to read uh, from their works. Rajan's going to be reading from Raining Fire, and, and Gregory, I'm told, is going to be re- reading from an as-yet-unpublished novel. So uh, we're looking forward to, to that stuff. A c- couple quick announcements before we begin. Uh, Word Bookstore's in the back. Word Wave. Yay! Word Bookstore's an awesome bookstore in Brooklyn and Jersey City, and uh, in, indie bookstore, so independent bookstore, so uh, you know, support your, your local bookstore. Uh, so in the for sale today they have Shadow Bridge by Greg Frost and Raining Fire by Rajan Khanna. So uh, at the break you can uh, go buy a book and bring them up to the office to get them signed. Greg also has copies of his collection. Right, of course. Thanks for reminding me. Uh, Gregory also has copies <laughs> of his collection. Can we can we hold it up? What's let me show it. Attack of the Jazz Giants by Greg Frost. So Greg has these for sale. If you want to come up to Greg and you can you can buy this from him and get it signed. Thank you. Um, so coming up uh, next month, September 20th, Catherine Vaz and Chris Sharp will be reading for us. October 18th, James Patrick Kelly and Kaya Shante Wilson will be reading here. November 15th, Grady Hendricks. Where's Grady? Grady. Grady Hendricks and David Rice. December 20th, N.K. Jemison and Chris Ann Brown. January 17th, Joseph. Joseph Helmreich, uh, February 21st, Peter Nell Van Arsdale, March 21st, Chandler Clang Smith. Come on, you guys got to clap for her. She, she, she runs the, uh, the, the uh, she organizes the, basically the, all the reading series here. So, plus she's, she's an amazing writer. Uh, May 16th, Tina Connolly and Carolyn M. Yakim. So, uh, we got, Great lineup for you uh, this year and, and early next. Um, so we hope you'll join us for that. Um, so on to our, our first reader for this evening. Um, so I've, I've had the, uh, the pleasure of knowing Raj for, for a long time. And um, I've read his work before I, I knew him, and I liked it then. And I like it even more now that, you know, full disclosure, he is a member of our Alter Fluids writers group. Um, And I've just always been amazed at his 
fluency, his creativity, and his um, proficiency in, in the stories that he tells. Um, so I'm just, I'm really happy to, to get to introduce him tonight. Um, Rajan Khanna is an author, blogger, reviewer, and narrator. His post-apocalyptic airship adventure series, starting with Falling Sky and Rising Tide, concluded in July, with, in, in July 2017 with Raining Fire. His short fiction has appeared in Lightspeed Magazine, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and many anthologies. His articles and reviews have appeared in Tor.com and Lit Reactor, and his podcast narrations, which are amazing, by the way, uh, can be heard at Podcastle, Escape Pod, Pseudopod, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and Lightspeed Magazine. Rajan lives in Brooklyn, where he's a member of the Alter Fluid Writing Group. Here's Rajan Khanna. Thank you, Matt. Um, and thanks, Ellen, for having me back, both of you. Uh, I was here about three, almost three years ago um, with the release of the first book in this series, Falling Sky. Uh, and now I'm back for the third and final book, Raining Fire, um, to close this whole story out. Um, and just before I, I read, I'm going to read from the middle of this book because I've been reading from the beginning and I'm bored with that. Um, however, there's not any spoilers that will ruin any of the earlier books, really, or anything here, I don't think. Um, and if there are, please don't bug me afterwards. Um, but uh, just if, if you haven't been exposed to these books at all, um, just some background stuff, simple stuff. Uh, near future setting, post-apocalyptic, a global pandemic has caused the majority of human uh, civilization to revert to animalistic violence, um, living but kind of like fast zombie-like creatures. And uh, the disease is extremely contagious, so people try to avoid contact um, with these creatures that are called ferals. And a lot of the population, or some of the population, has taken to living in airships and floating cities because um, in this world, uh, when gas got too expensive, they started making airships. So um, I'm just going to pick up in the middle with our protagonist, whose name is Ben, Ben Gold, um, who used to have his own airship and used to fly around and do sort of cool stuff, but um, has been through some terrible things earlier in these, in these books. Um, and so he, in the beginning of this scene, um, he has just been doing some soul searching uh, and was disturbed from that by a bunch of explosions. He ran to, to see what was going on. Um, and there was a settlement down at the bottom of a hill which had been bombed. He went down there, um, saw some ferals, those creatures that are like fast zombies but living, um, attacking some people. He stopped them um, and then the people turned a gun on him. So The woman shakes her head. We don't know you, she says. I just helped to save you, I say. I, the narrator is Ben, by the way. Just um, Then where did you come from, the woman with the gun asks. She has light brown skin and long, dark hair that she tied back, but which has come loose in all the activity. She wears a flannel shirt over a muddy t-shirt and jeans. These people are barely covered. Naked skin everywhere. Fences, I think. I wave my left hand back in the direction of the hill. 
Then, in a gesture of what I hope is goodwill and trust, I use that same hand to raise my goggles and pull my scarf down. It certainly makes the breathing easier. I was investigating that temple up on the hill. I saw explosions. Don't believe him, the young man says. Listen, I say, I... I freeze as I feel something pointed press into my side, very near my kidneys. I glance down quickly to see someone short, a kid, with a wicked-looking blade pressed up against me. Give her the pistol, the woman says, then using the pistol for emphasis, slowly. I nod slowly and adjust my grip on the revolver so that my fingers aren't near the trigger. Then I lower it and hand it to the young girl with cropped brown hair. The girl moves her fingers to the grip and the trigger and holds the gun on me, not putting the knife away either, but just holding it in her other hand. The gun looks ridiculously huge, but it doesn't waver. She backs up slightly, covering me from the back as the woman covers me from the front. The dark-haired woman moves forward. The gun is no longer outstretched. Her elbows are pulled into her body, the gun still at the ready. So, she says, the temple. Now I hold both of my hands up, palms toward her. Yes. Do you have an airship? She asks. I shake my head. Other transportation, then? I wince, then shake my head. Someone dropped me here. Are they coming back? I sigh. It was a one-way trip. See, the young man says, he's one of them. Who would take a one-way trip out here? Did you come looking for Phoenix? This from a tall, thin, light-skinned woman with long, reddish-brown hair tightly pulled back wearing glasses. Something about that reminds me of Miranda. I think about lying, about telling them I was looking for Phoenix, but I don't know if that's a person, a place, or an animal. No, I say, it's complicated, but I'm not one of the Valhallans. The dark-haired woman narrows her eyes. Now that I have a moment, the appearances of the other companions sinks in. There are five of them all together. The dark-haired woman and the young man, the woman with glasses, and an older, tall man with light skin and gray hair holding a club in his hand, and the young girl holding my own gun on me. She can't be much more than ten, I'm guessing. A feral howl cuts through the air. Shit. There are going to be more of them, I say. Your fence may have kept them out, but it's torn to shreds. They'll be attracted to all the light and activity and noise. Are there any buildings left? The dark-haired woman's eyes don't leave me. We have to hurry, I say. Again, nothing. Do you have any vehicles, I ask? Any airships or ground cars? Wagons? Bicycles? Anything? It's all gone to shit, the older man says in a low voice. It's all gone. Not all gone, the woman with glasses says. The storehouse is still there. She points at a large building at one end of the settlement. It's hard to tell. It's obscured by smoke and flickering flames from the nearby buildings, but it looks like it might be intact. We need to go there. Now. I can hear the howls. Closer more of them. So can my new friends. You can't come, the young man says. I was trying to help, I say. I point at the dead ferals. I took care of them. You were saving yourself, the dark-haired woman says. With no help from you, I snap. If you want to argue some more, can we please do it somewhere inside where more ferals can't get? Then we all snap our heads around because we can see them running toward us. A big pack. Maybe the one I saw up on the hill. Then we're all running, what we were arguing about forgotten, as we all make for shelter. I could try to get away, but where would I go? So instead I put my faith in their course, hoping that they're right, that one building escaped all of this unscathed. Besides, the little girl has my gun. As we near the building, I see that it does indeed look like some kind of storehouse or something, big and blocky, 
The front of it is burned, scorched, but appears as if the firebombs fell short of the mark and just splashed across the outside without doing any major damage. A crater on one side supports that notion, but luckily the crater is out of our way. Our way to the entrance is clear. We reach it at a dead run. There are two large sliding doors on the outside. My new friends all move to one and start pushing. It cracks open, but only a little. Well, the dark-haired woman says, you want to help? Help. I wanted you to help, I say under my breath, but I move to the door and grip one of the large handles on the side, sharing it with the older man, and push with all the strength left in me. An agonizing long space seems to stretch on, but then it starts moving wide enough for us all to speed in. Now close it. The woman shouts, and we all do the same, only in reverse. By now, the mechanism has at least been loosened, and we're able to slide it shut with a resounding clank. The two women slide some latches into place. I finally let out my breath. I could see the ferals coming toward us, see the numbers, their faces, their looks of greed, of hunger upon them. So many, so hungry. I sink to the ground, exhausted. The dark-haired woman turns the gun on me again. Now tell us why you're really here. I rub my face with my hands. That time in the temple just a few hours ago feels more like weeks. It's personal, I say. The woman with dark hair crosses her arms, the pistol still held tightly. And you had someone drop you here all by yourself with no way to get out. I meet her eyes. Who said I wanted to get out? She shakes her head, her eyes widening. So you're a crazy person. Let's just say it wasn't well thought out. You think? Scratching on the outside doors, growls, grunts, screams of challenge. I get to my feet and brush out my clothes. Dark hair keeps the gun trained on me the whole time. I'm here now, I say. We're all here now, and we're all in a load of shit. So what do we say we put the guns away and work on getting out of here in one piece? Dark hair, who seems to be the leader here, looks at her people, then back at me. She tucks her pistol away in the back of her jeans. Fine, she says. No guns, but... She meets the eyes of her people. You see him doing something funny, feel free to shoot him. Much better, I say. She scans the room. Look around for food or weapons or anything else that might help. As they move away, I finally look around the place. I've been smelling it already. Grease, dust, mold, machine smells, chemical smells. Now I can see why. The space is big and it's not completely full, but against the far wall is an assortment of machines, all in various states of repair. I see things that look like the remnants of ground cars, parts of an airship, several things that are probably large tool machines, a series of pulleys and winches, engines, motors, fan blades, smaller tools and parts resting on tables. A workshop, I say. Yes, dark hair says. It hasn't been much use it hasn't been used much lately, but the idea was to see what we could salvage or repair from the nearby houses and shops. I stare at her. Are you the leader? of the settlement? She looks at me in surprise and snorts. Me? She shakes her head. No, I was just someone who lived here. Welcome to Phoenix. Like the old city? She shakes her head. Like the bird. You lost me. A myth from the clean. A bird that rises out of the ashes of its predecessor. Oh, I say, getting the symbolism. Her expression gets dark and she runs a hand through her hair. This place was founded by a man named Lincoln. He wanted to set up a place where anyone could come, a safe space, a place where the past could be forgotten, a new start for anyone. Her eyes tear up, and they killed him for it. The Valhallans. She nods. She stares at me for a second, then shrugs. I'm Coretta, she says. The big guy is Tomas, the smaller one, Buzz. 
Sandra is the one with the glasses and a hell of a fine doctor, and the girl's Ellie. I'm Ben, I say. Well, Ben, what do you say we look around for something useful? I shrug. Okay. Stay close to me, though. I nod, best to keep in Coretta's good graces for the time being, but I'm inclined to make her stick close to me. The first things I head for are the airship parts. There's no real hull to speak of, or maybe some of the large plates might have been part of a keel, but there's what looks like there's what look like there's what looks like ballonets deflated hanging from a rack, and some large tanks of lift leaning against a wall, which are probably hydrogen, but may even be helium, judging by the looks of them. They may even be from Gastown before the Valhallans took it. More exciting, to me at least, are the engines, propeller units that are resting against the wall. They look like they're from a smaller ship. They wouldn't be enough to push the Cherub or even the Valkyrie, but they look pretty good for what they are. No signs of rust or deterioration, but there's no airship for them to push. You really have no airships here, I ask? No, Coretta says. Some would come through from time to time, traders that we had relations with, but nothing permanent. Lincoln intended this place to be a haven on the ground. Still, we had a few Zeps who lived here, people who lost their ships or gave up the life for one reason or another. I think they were stockpiling parts to try to build some kind of junker to help us roam a bit farther. I finger the ballonet skins. They're good, intact, but without a hull. Looks like they didn't get far enough. We look some more, investigating some of the tools and machinery, before Coretta brings us back to the center and asks everyone what they found. Simple answer, nothing useful. No food, no weapons unless that means improvised clubs made of metal rods or other bits of machinery. Already the grunting and shrieking outside sounds louder. More ferals, attracted by the others, knowing that there's something good inside the building, like a giant can of meat just waiting to be opened up. We're not going to be able to get to last long without food, Buzz says. The lack of water will get us first, Sandra says. So we need to figure out a place, how to get out of this place, I say unless we get lucky and the ferals decide to leave on their own, but I don't expect that they will. We can wait them out for a day, Coretta says. They may get bored and move on, or some might at least. I still have my gun. We have Ben's. I hadn't forgotten. We have some other weapons. We can wait and fight our way out if we have to. And go where, I ask. Towns burned out. Ferals may be hiding anywhere. Do you know of any other nearby settlements or places we can take shelter? What about the temple, Buzz asks. You said you were there. There's no food there, or water, and the ferals have a way in. Buzz steps forward. Or maybe you don't want us to go there. I meet his eyes. Honestly, kid, I don't care what you do. Go up there, don't go up there, but, and saying this makes me realize that it's true, I don't want to die or get eaten by ferals, so I'd like to get as far away from here as possible, hopefully somewhere with food and water. I look at Coretta. You sure you have no vehicles? She sighs. We had a couple of cars that were rigged up to drive, but they didn't survive the attack. You're sure of that? Yes, she snaps. I'm sure. She stands up. I'm the one who's lived here for the past year, and I'm the one who was here when the bombs fell. And you checked everything. She gets in my face, her finger outstretched. Who the fuck do you think you are? Coming in here, uninvited, asking questions? I can feel you working your way up to giving commands. You're only here for as long as we say you get to be. Coretta, Sandra says. Coretta ignores her. You're starting to piss me off, and I don't see why we shouldn't just toss your ass out of the door. Coretta, more insistent now. In fact, why don't you get your ass up and get ready to run? Coretta! It cuts through the tension, and everyone turns to look at Sandra, wondering what's going on. But she doesn't need to answer. 
because there's the sound of groaning, of something under pressure, and then a loud crunch as one panel of the warehouse falls inward, and suddenly the sound of ferals gets louder. I start moving toward it, wondering, even as I'm doing it, why I am, and Coretta calls out behind me, Stop! I look over my shoulder to see that she has the gun out. Shoot me, I say. When I get to the wall, I can see that this building didn't escape unscathed the way that we all thought it had. Something in the concussion from the detonation or something else caused the wall to fracture. At least one thin crack runs up and down the whole panel from the ground to the roof. There might be more. With the pressure of ferals against the wall, it's starting to shift. Already I can see shapes moving in front of the crack. Near the ground, the ferals can't breach it yet, but if they keep pushing... We need to stay away from this, I say. They might not be able to get in, but the bug can. The crack might get larger. We need to get out of here now. How? Buzz asks. I return to the bits and pieces of the vehicles. No airships, no, but there were some old hunks of vehicles. Do any of these work or close to work? We would just need to keep it, to get it moving and keep it moving. Steering is optional. Steering works, Tomas says in his quiet, deep voice, but they don't drive. No engines or fuel lines. And of course we have airship engines, but no, wait. We should break this, we should brace this crack, Buzz says, get things up against it. Wait, wait, wait. Give me a hand, he says to someone. We have the skeleton of a ground car, or truck rather, looking at it, no engine, but we have the propellers of an airship and ballonets. Looks like there's fuel and the whole room creaks again and the wall panel that was open just a hair a second ago now leans into the room, the crack even wider. What the fuck are you doing? I stalk over to where Buzz and Sandra are, my hand automatically going to my holster, which is now empty. Buzz moves forward, head out, aggressive. We were trying to fortify the wall. And how did that work out for you, I shout back. I'm thinking that I have no time for this fool of a kid when a hand, long-nailed and dirty, pokes through the gap between the wall plates, and I grab Buzz and pull him away. He shakes free. Get off of me. Do you see the ferals, I point at the arms waving through the gap, pushing their way through, or are you too fucking stupid to get that? He shoves me, hard enough to force me back a step or two. The first thought in my head is, am I really going to have to fight this kid? Then the little girl Ellie appears, and she puts a hand on his arm. Stop, Buzz, she says. He seems to settle for a minute. I'm relieved, but I see my revolver tucked into Ellie's belt. I could probably get to it. It only has one bullet left, but I have more in my pockets. Not a lot more. Not a lot more, but enough. But then what, Ben? The moment passes. We need to get out of here, I bark. Now. How? Coretta asks. What I was thinking of before Buzz started fucking us comes back to me. We build a junker. As quickly as we can. What? Several of them say at once. We have that truck. With no engines, Buzz says. But we have the airship engines. How is that going to work? Sandra asks. We use the ballonets, I say. Fill them up with as much gas as we can manage and attach them to the truck. Will that lift it off the ground, Sandra asks? No, I say, but it doesn't need to. It will lighten the truck with all of us on it and let us go quicker. It also gives us a way to rig the engines up. We can use something as a frame to mount them on and lift, lift them with the ballonets. That sounds ridiculous, Buzz says. Maybe, I say, but it should get us out of here and moving. Does anyone else have a better idea? I look around at all of their faces, blank or skeptical. Please, if you have anything, speak up now before the ferals widen that gap and get in to kill us all. It's a stupid plan, Coretta, Buzz says. Coretta nods. But it might be all we have, she says. How fast do you think it will go? If I can tinker with the engines and we're not worried about keeping them for very long, I don't know. 
fast enough? It depends on acceleration. I'm used to being in the air, I say. We'll have more weight, and while the wheels will help us a little, they'll provide some drag, so it'll take us a little while to get up to speed. And the ferals will be on top of us as we're trying. I shrug. It won't be easy. Coretta turns to her people. I'm not your leader, she says. You all need to decide if you want to do this, but I think this is our best shot. Who's with me? Us. Ellie moves forward and stands next to Coretta first. Then Tomas says, me. Sandra nods and stands up from where she's sitting on a wooden crate. They all look at Buzz. Okay, he says, but I still don't trust him. Noted, I say. I'm going to need you all to help. If you know how to use tools, come forward now. I'll need some of you filling the ballonets, some of you helping me to rig up the engines and the structures, and we have to move quickly. Just tell us what you need us to do, Coretta says. So I do. I split them up, assign them to tasks. I keep Tomas with me because he's the strongest and because he knows his way around machines and tools. I assign Buzz to Coretta because I think that he needs to be kept in line and she's probably the one to do it. That leaves Ellie and Sandra together. I put them on the ballonets. Ellie listens to everything that I say with a serious face. I take it that none of these people are your parents, I say. She shakes her head. The attack, I ask. She looks at her shoes, thick black rubbery looking boots that seem comfortable and practical. My dad, she says. My mom died when I was little. I nod, same. She lifts her head up, her chin jutting out defiantly and meets my eyes. I'm not gonna let them kill me. The trace of a smile lifts the corners of my mouth. Same, I say. Sandra returns from straightening out the valinets and the connecting ties. I show them how to fill them and how to check for holes. There's enough extra to patch them if necessary. We're not going for permanence here, just enough to get us free and some other mode of transportation or safety. Um, I'm gonna skip ahead because there's a little bit where we get to know the people. Um, but, okay. Uh, sorry. Um, at some point in this whirling storm of shit, there's another wrenching, squealing sound, and another crunch as the wall collapses inward. I jump to my feet and see arms reaching through the crack, and then a head and a body wriggling through. Everyone, get on board now, I yell. We have to get out. They all get to their feet, reaching for weapons, for clothing, and scramble on board the junker that we decided to name the monster after Frankenstein's creation, a similar construction of disparate parts. I hope our monster treats us better. The ferals are pushing their way in as I reach up to the two switches that start the engines. They're not situated in the most convenient place, but we didn't have a lot of time or materials to work with. As I'm reaching, Tomas comes up behind me and lifts me up where I can kick them both into gear. One of the problems with our plan was the need to get the doors open. If we had two people do it, and it would need to at a minimum, they would be torn apart by ferals. And even if they weren't, it would be hard to catch up to the monster. So we had to come up with an alternate plan. When we tallied up what was left after building the monster, we realized we still had a few tanks of gas. The thing about gas is that it's held under intense pressure. When that pressure is released, it can pack quite a force. I once saw a pressurized gas cylinder used as a torpedo. All you need to do is shear off the regulator and the cylinder will take off like a rocket. We lined up three of them, held in place by some extra metal. Another piece of metal, long and thin, had been rigged to fall down on the regulator ends. I turn to make sure that everyone is on board the monster, and as I do, a feral wriggles through the crack and drops to the ground, like a worm or something being born. I reach for the chain that's rigged to the hanging metal and yank it. The metal falls down straight and hard on the regulators. 
One of them stays attached, but the other two shear off, and the two metal cylinders take off for the door as if fired from a gun. Both hit the door and tear it from the tracks that hold it in place. The door falls to the ground with a clatter, landing on many of the ferals standing in front of it. Then I leap aboard the truck and hit the brake release. We shoot forward into the breach. And I'll end there. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Uh, we're going to take a 10 or 15 minute break. Uh, like I said before, uh, Raining Fire is for sale in the back from Word Bookstore and also uh, Shadow Bridge from Gregory. So uh, we're going to be back in about 15 minutes with Greg Frost. So stick around. Thanks. Welcome back to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. It's a pleasure to see you all here in this nice, cool air, cool place. It's like it's really crappily sticky out. But anyway, our second reader is going to be Greg Frost. Gregory Frost is the author of Shadow Bridge, Lord Toffet, Fitcher's Brides, and the Pure Gold Light, and a whole mess of short stories of the fantastic. Um, some of which are, co are collected in the in the collection he's got with him, Attack of the Jazz Monsters. Jazz Giants, sorry. <laughs> which you can, which is a limited, which is a limited, out of print, really lovely looking book. So you should buy it. Golden Griffin, Golden Griffin do they, don't, which doesn't exist anymore. His collaboration with Michael Swanwick. His collaboration with Michael Swanwick. Lock up your chickens and daughters. Hard and Andy are coming to town. Won an Asimov's Readers Award for 2015. That worked out so well that he and M. Swanwick are currently engaged in writing another collaboration. Greg is a fiction workshop director at Swarthmore College and with Jonathan Mayberry founded the Philadelphia branch of the Liars Club, a collective of semi-deranged and often inebriated authors. <laughs> Greg is working on a collaborative series with Jonathan Mayberry based upon their novella, Rhymer, published in the anthology, Dark Duets. Please welcome Greg Frost. So in the uh, <coughs> time-honored tradition of, uh, of the methodology which has uh, brought me to the state of, uh, of extreme poverty that you find me in today, uh, I'm reading from something that you can't go over there and buy uh, after I read it because uh, it, it isn't even in print yet. Um, it isn't even sold to a publisher yet. And as Ellen said, it's a, uh, it's a collaborative piece um, I'm working on with Jonathan Mayberry, but I'm writing, it's, it's a weird collaboration because it's sort of like I'm writing the origin novel and he's going to probably write the second novel and then I might write the back. Very strange concept anyway in collaborations. But this is, um, we wrote a um, novella together about five years ago uh, riffing on Thomas the Rhymer and I ended up doing so much research before first drafting the damn thing that I thought I can't put this away. Um, and so uh, I, I talked to him about it, and, and I've started writing the, uh, as I say, the origin story for this. So this is, this is um, the first two chapters. They're, they're fairly short of, uh, of a piece we're calling Rhymer. So if there are any editors in the audience this evening who want to buy this, get in touch. Um, the other thing I wanted to say was I was going to dedicate the reading this evening to Ikea uh, because 
I got I got an IKEA catalog in the mail like two weeks ago, and I'm flipping through it, and I discover that they have a new yoga mat, and it's called the Charm Troll. <laughs> and I'm going, who the fuck doesn't want to do their yoga on a Charm Troll? I mean, it's just such a anyway. Welcome to I. It'll be in the next Deadpool movie. Trust me. So, okay. All right. So this is this is the first part of Raymond. You understand? Onku asked, and Thomas realized suddenly that his brother had been speaking to him. He looked up, mouth agape, lips slack as a drunkard's. He squinted. What was Anku saying? He pushed dirty fingers through his unkempt hair, shook his shaggy head. They weren't at home. His mother and father weren't here. His sister, neither. God, he's garmless, Baldy laughed. He stood behind Anku halfway to the river. The river. Anku shushed Baldy and tried again. You stay here now, Tommy. It's dry and you can sleep in the grass till we f while we fish up river, okay? Thomas took in the tall, reedy grass around him, the glimmering of the river ahead. Then he twisted around to see the trees behind him, black alders. He knew where he was, remembered they had come here from home, the route Anku, Baldy, and he always took, though the specifics of the journey itself eluded him. So many things eluded him. They'd been walking, but anyway, he wasn't allowed on a horse. He closed his eyes, saw his feet plodding, plodding, plodding along a path, following it from their big stone house past Styes, the well, across countryside, to the Yarrow where it met the Ettrick River, Anku's fishing path. The weight of his brother's hand pressed down on his shoulder. Sit. Anku gently ordered, and he opened his eyes again. Memory slipped away like a school of minnows. Thomas, Lindsay, Rimor, de Erseldom, half-witted 14-year-old son of a locally powerful family, did as he was bade and squatted down in the grass. He was lean and black-haired and his fierce blue eyes could pin you as sharp as blades if you could get him to focus on you for longer than an instant. Had it not been for the fits that plagued him and the simpleness of his mind, he might have been a fine catch for most any girl in the town. The trouble was everyone there and for miles around knew of his peculiarities. Some thought him possessed, others were certain he was touched, perhaps divine. Weren't the sibyls of the ancient days similarly cursed in Taliesin as well? Opinions varied widely. Those closest to him, his father, even his mother, privately, and definitely his brother, believed him to be an idiot. Only his sister, Innes, thought him blessed by God in a way no one yet understood, which wasn't to say that Anku didn't love him, but Thomas was more often than not a burden. Pushed down, he sat cross-legged among the reeds. He smiled to Anku. Hey, old Baldy said, there's a relief. His thick mouth smirked beneath a nose bent crooked ever since the first time they brought the idiot with them. That morning, Thomas had been seized by a fit, fallen face first into the Ettrick River, and would have drowned if Baldy hadn't weighed in quick and grabbed hold of him. But Thomas, unaware of everything, including his savior, had flapped and windmilled and swung his head wildly back, cracking the bridge of Baldy's nose, getting himself dumped face down in the water again until Anku hauled him out. Baldy, cursing, spitting, refused thereafter to touch him for all the treasures of the fae. There were no fish caught that morning. Spluttering Thomas had scared them off. When Anku had flung him safely onto dry land, he'd rolled about and babbled, the teeth of the sheep will lay the plow to rest and then fallen quiet and still. As his predictions went, it made about as much sense as any. Since then, Baldy continued to give him a wide berth. If he'd set himself on fire now, Baldy would only have nodded in appreciation from a respectful distance. 
You don't follow us now, Bonku told Thomas. He knelt close, rubbed Thomas's back. You stay here, sleep till the sun's down, or I don't know, count the leaves on that black alder. Thomas tilted back his head and looked at the nearest tree upside down. 2,968, he said. Leave him already, Baldy called. Boots off, he was wading into the water, hissing at every plashing step from one big and precarious stone to another. Christ, Uncle said. Then count the damn bulrushes. 87, I could see more where I standing, he started to get up. Well, you're not standing, Tom. Lay back now. Count birds flying over. Count clouds. Count catkins till we come get you, and then you can tell me all of what you've seen, hey? He did as he was told and stared into the sky, all but forgetting that Anku was there. Come on, insisted Baldy. That's feckin' cold, and I'm not gonna stand here till my balls crawl up inside me. <laughs> Thomas heard Anku laughing, tug off his boots, and wade out after his friend, Baldy, plump and generous, though he'd never admit it. But Thomas saw him as true as the tenderness in Anku's heart for him. Heard them on the far bank then, Baldy chattering about the harvest. Their voices faded into the world where birds sang songs, no two alike, a conversation he could very nearly understand as he tracked it back and forth, and the reeds sizzled now, waving accompanied by breezes, and thoughts jittered and split and swarmed. Every moment took him off somewhere. He hardly noticed when the sounds and sensations of the whole world absorbed his brother in Baldy like soil soaking up rain. Time isolated him from before and after, cause and effect, sealed him off from human communication, from meaning. It could be sunrise one moment and night the next. Such a discontinuity was just how the world was to Thomas. He was quite used to losing most of it. What was lost wasn't important, wasn't noticed. After a while, he tilted his head back again. 207 catkins, he said of a goat willow, larger than my fingers. He held up his hand to study those fingers, dirt encrusted the broken nails. The sun was hanging to the west now. Afternoon had arrived, new shadows, different lines, angles, and slices out of the light. He placed his hand over the sun. The edges of his fingers glowed red-orange, and he smiled. A breeze blew, and the reeds hissed all around him. An alien scent rode on the breeze. It drew his attention away from admiring his glowing fingers. He recalled every smell ever, though many had no name and simply came with images, moments cut out of a dark dough and scattered. This one was new, strangely sweet, like wildflower honey. At that moment, the sun went into eclipse, or had it begun to set? His hand was just his hand again, held up against darkness. He lowered it. A strange shape sat upon a beast right beside him, silhouetted black against the sun. The shape seemed to have two heads. He squinted, but that didn't help. Odd spikes festooned the figure and the horse it rode, but he saw immediately it wasn't a horse. It had a snout too long and too sharp, though it pawed the ground impatient as a horse. It carried its rider out of the sun's way, and brightness flared into his eyes again, making them tear up. The air tinkled musically. The sweetness enveloped him, and the bees making it buzzed within his brain, realigning his thoughts. Thomas sat up, wiped at his eyes, streaking dirt across his cheek like some warrior picked preparing for battle. Peering down upon him was the most extraordinary woman he'd ever seen. She wore a green cape, the hood fallen back to reveal her resplendent red hair beneath a pointed cap. The beast was revealed now to be a stallion of pure white bedecked in a fine blue and gold caparison. How had he seen it differently? 
It also observed him coolly, but he hardly noticed that. The second head belonged to Anku, who was seated behind the woman on the stallion. His expression was as dull as if he was asleep with his eyes open. Anku changed his mind about fishing with Baldy, Thomas said aloud without noticing. Why? Something like invisible fingers seemed to prod and push at his head, creating a pressure not unlike what he felt just before a fit struck. But the storm did not rage through him. Instead, the bees buzzed about his thoughts again. Majesty, said a deep voice. Thomas followed it to a retinue of two men on their own horses behind her, knights in black armor. They had plainly crossed the river together. Shall we? No, Adelbander, she answered. Look at him, poor broken toy, and such a pretty one too. What a waste. I wonder, should we swap him for this other? Odd that her cherry lips didn't move as she spoke, though the words rang in his head clear as New Year's bells. The Queen of Heaven, he thought, but could not remember where he had heard the title. Was it a song? Wasn't someone playing a hurdy-gurdy? She smiled then with the magnanimous pity of a monarch, and in that smile lay her decision that would change her world and his in ways unimaginable. She would not take him in the place of the other boy, but instead leaned down and brushed her hand across his face. Her blood-dark nails traced his forehead. His whirling, buzzing thoughts slowed, stilled. For the first time in his life, Thomas experienced a silence inside himself. One thing was clear. Anku changed his mind about shh. The lady shushed him with the sound of the reeds, urged him to lie back in the grass again and sleep. To her retinue, she said, we will leave this one. Let him forget we passed. I've snatched his puzzled thoughts. He did lie back as commanded, but neither slept nor forgot. He could see in his mind the 59 silver bells woven into the stallion's mane and the 12 stars along the reins, the way the shining barding across its forelock poked up as if the horse had horns, just as he could see the odd gold shape of the lady's eyes, which made him think of both buttons and spiders, the way her pupils seemed like pinpricks around her bright irises. She pulsated with desire. He wanted to go with Anku. They went everywhere together. The bells tinkled as she rode off. The other two passed beside him, and like her, they each crossed the ball of the sun, and as they did, they changed. Spines as sharp and polished as thorns projected from their silhouettes. Their mouths became fanged, and the beasts upon which they were seated turned into things carved from dark skeletons, but not of horses. He had never seen anything like them and was too awed to be terrified. Close by came the pale rider's thoughts. They wanted to kill him, did not care that he saw their true nature. But their queen had been clear in her command, and they passed him by, becoming men and horses again. He watched them upside down, riding toward the black alder until the swishing tall grass hid them. He lay still a while longer, wondering about things, his thoughts assembling in ways new to him, in orderly patterns. The great roar of the world had quieted, letting him perceive his thoughts before he spoke them. Eventually, he arrived at a troubling question that brought him to his feet. Why hadn't Baldy been with them, too? By what new instinct he couldn't say, Thomas walked down to the strand of the pebbles and small rocks where his brother and Baldy had crossed the river. The big stepping stones out in the water led to a path up the opposite bank. They always fished in the same spot across the peninsula of woodland. As he stood there, a long wooden pole swept past. Pulled along by the current, it clacked against the stones in the middle of the stream, rotated, and slid between them. 
It was unmistakably Anku's dapping pole, tied with strips of leather at the handle and the juncture in the middle. Floating along the river as if in pursuit of it came a bundle of rags, but soon enough he identified a forearm, the back of a head, legs. The rags became a body. He waded in. It was icy, cold, the water. He jumped from stone to stone to intercept the body. It floated up beside him, and he squatted, grabbed onto a sleeve, and tugged. Baldy rolled over like a log. Face up, his blank eyes stared wide as if beholding something terrible in the sky. There was no wound, no blood to be seen. But sodden and heavy, he was too much for Thomas, and the current had its way, prying the body from his chilled fingers into the main channel and dragging Thomas in with it. He splashed, choked, hammered the surface with his arms, finally clutched onto the big stone again and pulled himself back to safety. By the time he could look, Baldy was well down the river, a flowing clutch of rags again. Thomas managed to work from stone to stone and finally washed himself up on the pebbly strand, crawled out and lay, gasping. Pressure filled his head again. Streaks of lightning fractured his sight. He heard his voice as he always did, as if it was another's. A time for hell. They arrive. They take all Greenwood their enchantment. He mewled and rocked and rocked on the strand. Unlike every riddle he had ever babbled before, this one opened to him like a flower. His thoughts quieted, coalesced around it. The knights had killed Baldy to take Onku. But why? And where were they going? No war hereabouts, no fighting, no village, no habitation on that path in that direction either, only the old abbey, and they were no monks. They arrive, they take. Fifty bird calls trilled on the wind like tinkling bells. All greenwood. Thomas jumped to his feet and ran. The riders easily outdistanced him, but the moist soil made their tracks easy to follow. Three-toed hoof prints belonging to no horse he'd ever seen. It seemed reckless as though the lady and her knights did not care if anyone came after them. He thought it was the new abbey under construction toward which they headed, but once they'd forded the Tweed, they diverted east and east was the graveyard in Old Melrose, as people were already calling it, the 600-year-old abbey ruin where the Cistercians used to live. It was a holy site and had been one for so long a time before there were even monks. Who had said that? Someone speaking to his father once upon a time when he was younger because people would say anything in front of him. He didn't matter. Only look how he did now. He jumped with excitement as he ran along the path. Look how he was able to sort things that he'd seen and heard. There was a war in the South, a king named Stephen and a queen named Matilda, but they weren't married to each other, didn't like each other. How was that important to know? He could not remember, if ever he'd known. Couldn't even be sure there was a war now or if it was something current or yet to come. Some things remain jumbled and obscure after all. Up ahead on a bend of the river and near the bridge to Erseldom lay the ruin of old Melrose. He would be upon it soon. He slowed his step and walked on through the trees with more care. The Queen of Heaven might not like it if he intruded. Maybe she had descended to reward Anku for looking after him. His brother certainly deserved a reward just for all the times he'd stood for Thomas, defended him. There were so many people who couldn't tolerate his weakness, his confusion. It seemed to make them angry or afraid. He didn't understand why. He asked for nothing from them. Ahead stood a thicket of downy birch past which he saw the first of the 67 grave markers along the north side of the old stone abbey. It was a small rectangular building with no door in its doorway and half its roof thatch gone, nothing like the majestic structure that would be built to replace it. 
Dozens of circular stone huts in various states of decay dotted the rocky ground beyond it. He could not see the Queen of Heaven yet, but he could feel her, the pressure in his head like the storms that lashed him before a riddle fell from his lips. Crouching low, he worked his way from marker to marker, some misshapen and grown over with moss, others covered in lettering, none of which he knew how to read. He reached a stone on a small knoll and peered over the top of a gravestone. The two knights sat on horseback still. Around them stood seven people on foot. They weren't monks. The five men wore doublets or tunics rich with embroidery. One of them he recognized from Erseldon, an alderman named Stroud who had come to his father's house many times. The two women wore crowned wimples and long satin gowns of blue and gold respectively. People of wealth they all seemed to be. In the center of their loose circle, both the lady and Anku sat upon her horse, as if basking in their admiration. Thomas took to hands and knees to steal closer still behind one mossy stone that looked as worn and ancient as the ruins. The people on foot closed in upon the horse. They gathered to one side of it, reached up, hands grabbed Anku's leg, arm, his shirt. They pulled him down among them. They made an excited noise that seemed to emerge from inside his head, a weird churring as if fierce beetles were crawling out his ears. He could not help swatting at himself, the sensation was so overwhelming. The queen uttered a command, but her words were foreign and queer now. He could not see Anku between the people, but it was clear he was the object of their efforts as they worked, buzzing like a hive of bees, only not bees, not anything he knew or understood. After some minutes, the noise abruptly stopped and the people backed away. Anku, upright, stood naked in their midst. He didn't move, nor seem at all self-conscious, as he'd been the one time that Innes had caught them swimming naked. Anku had covered himself with his hands. Now they hung loosely at his sides. The queen made another statement he didn't understand. Strange that he'd comprehended her words before without difficulty, but could not decipher the strange noise she made now. The alderman strode up in front of the queen and her horse. He raised his arm high above his head, his fingers held something dark, about the size of a skipping stone from the river. Anku and Baldi skip stones on their trick all the time. The alderman brought his hand straight down, and where it swept, the air seemed to sizzle with green smoke. The smoke became a kind of fire that spread, eating away from the center outward, becoming a circle. It was like nothing so much as a great round Catherine window, like the great round hole where the window would go in the transept of the new abbey. The green edges continued to flicker like fire, but the circle contained something other than the view of the old ruin now. Two creatures stood on the far side, black and spiny, with yellow eyes. They looked the way the knights had against the disk of the sun. It might have been an illusion, but the two seemed to stand at the head of two lines, which receded into some foreign distance, into eternity, for all he could tell. The six besides the aldermen closed ranks to either side of Anku, and together they all paraded toward the circle. Anku walked under his own power, if sluggishly. The queen and her knights followed, the whole of it seeming like a ceremony. Why Anku had agreed to go with him, Thomas could not fathom, but it wasn't, could not be a good thing. He stood up and jumped over the low marker. He needed to bring Anku back. The three horses carried their riders into the circle. Wait, Thomas shouted. Alderman Stroud swung about, shocked until he saw who had yelled. Stop! The alderman smirked and stepped through the circle after everyone else, then turned and for a moment simply stared at him as if too astonished to react. Thomas ran for all he was worth, weaving around the stone straight at the man. 
He didn't have a weapon, but then he'd hardly thought how he intended to rescue his brother. The alderman went down on one knee to cut the air upward on a diagonal, even as Thomas sprang. As the alderman rose, the circle collapsed toward a single seam, and Thomas merged with it halfway through. The world around him spun green jewel shapes, flickering facets shifting into new sharp-edged forms too fast for him to comprehend. They coalesced, flared bright as the sun. The great roaring of a tempest filled his head. Green turned to red, the roar rushing over him as if he were drowning in a sparkling, spinning ocean of blood, while sun and moon whirled and whirled about him. Then the light burst brightly and flung him away like an angry child throwing a cloth doll. He flew back into the world again, struck the nearest grave marker so hard that it tipped halfway out of the ground. He flopped behind it, insensible. The seam left not a trace upon the air. After a while, the birds began to sing again, but Thomas heard nothing. The sun, no longer whirling, steadily descended. A dragonfly lit on his cheek, considered his eyelash for a moment, and then flitted away. Thank you. I don't know. It's half written, so. And you and Jonathan work Well, like I say, it's a weird concept in collaboration, which is to say, I'm writing this one, and then I'll give it to him, and he'll look at it, and he'll probably do some things with it, and then he'll write one that's probably set in contemporary times, more likely spun off the novella that we worked on in the first place. So, we may just go back and forth in time because we can. So, thank you. Thank you, Gregory. Thank you, Rajan. Thanks to all of you. Thanks to KGB Bar. Uh, books are still for sale. And uh, hang around, have a drink, and uh, get a book, get it signed. And uh, we'll see you next month. So uh, have a great rest of the summer. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB Bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.